1: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm coming to you with a very special episode on COVID-19. I was lucky enough to get in touch with Mike Scott, uh, from uh, now from Penn, who's one of the chiefs of critical care there, and he is in uh, has been working closely with uh, Mauricio Serretta, who is one of the critical care docs there, and has been in close touch with... Uh, a really wonderful physician anesthesiologist in Italy who's really on the front lines. And so we put this together very last minute. This all came together just in the past day. So you'll see uh, it's going to be a little bit uh, helter-skelter, but really, I think, important messages coming across from some of what they've been thinking about at Penn and some of what has been happening in Italy on the ground and what really they are describing as a war zone. You'll hear some tough things. Uh, about what's having to happen in Italy. Um, It will not be easy to listen to. I want to have the huge, huge uh, flag and caveat up front to say, of course, uh, that things are changing on a daily basis here. What we discuss in terms of what may or may not be good things to do may change by tomorrow. And so I want to urge people to check with your local hospital uh, infection control folks, figure out what the protocols that are being put in place at your hospital are and follow those. Please don't assume that what we're saying is advice to be taken uh, directly into patient care. This is stuff to think about and discuss with your colleagues, with your hospital, with your leadership. And for everybody out there, if there are lay lay folks listening to this, this is really about uh, prevention. And you'll hear us emphasize that again and again. What can we all do, all of us as citizens, to try to prevent us getting to the point That they have reached in Italy where they're having to decide who gets a ventilator and who just has to die because they don't have enough ventilators, they don't have enough hospital beds, they don't have enough ICU beds for the enormous number of cases, let alone other people who are just sick and don't have covid So we don't want to get there. And in order to prevent it, we need to be responsible ourselves. So let that be the biggest take-home message. You'll hear us talk about that. And you'll hear us talk about a lot of the other lessons that can be learned from their experience there in Italy. Uh, All right. So let's jump in. My apologies. The audio is not going to be great. I was supposed to be away on vacation. We've canceled that trip, but I don't have any of my normal uh, recording equipment with me here at home. Uh, It's at work where I had left it. So the audio won't be, uh, probably what we're normally used to here. Uh, and, um, we but we'll, we'll do the best we can. I think just for the sake of, uh, the seriousness of the, of the issue, we're not going to do kind of random recommendations for now, uh, with this group. Uh, I will say that, uh, most likely the live ACRAC episode will be canceled uh I'm' we'll kind of definitively announce that within the next few weeks, but um I think we're most likely to have to put that off until this is all settled down, and it's safe to have a large group again together so please, if you were planning on coming in April uh thank you for that for those plans but let's assume for now that that uh, won't be happening, and let's get on with learning what we can from some of the folks on the front lines here. I have with me three incredible experts who have uh Agreed to spend some time discussing what's going on with the COVID right now. Uh, I've got uh, Dr. Mike Scott, who listeners will remember was on the show a while back talking about a completely different topic, but he's now one of the division chiefs of critical care at Penn and has been very involved in preparations there. I've also got with me Dr. Mauricio Sereda, who is also an anesthesia critical care doc. He is also the head of the ICU fellowship at Penn and does a lot of research on ARDS And then really special, and I'm so grateful to have with us uh, one of his colleagues, who was actually one of his medical students uh, in Italy. And is now an anesthesiologist and critical care doc there. Dr. Mirko Nicotti, who is uh, on the ground in Italy and has agreed to spend some time, despite I'm sure being exhausted, sharing with us some of what is going on there and what they've learned. Um, He is also an anesthesiologist and a cardiac uh, anesthesiologist there in Bergamo, which is about an hour and a half from Milan, and is really on the ground uh, with some of the the worst cases that, that we have going on. And they've learned a lot and are here to share with us. So I want to start with you, Mike, um, and ask you to just, you know, let's do some very basic, let's review, what are we talking about? When people say the coronavirus or COVID, or, you know, some people may know the actual virus's name, SARS-CoV-2, just take me through what we're what we're dealing with here.
0: Yeah, so it's been described as a novel coronavirus. Uh, Coronaviruses are recognized because they've got this like crown when you look at them on electron microscopy. Right. Uh, It was called COVID-19 purely because it's been classified in 2019. And now because it's been associated with severe acute respiratory syndrome, it's basically been renamed SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-CoV-2. Uh, So it's the same type of virus that was the SARS epidemic in 2002 to four and also the MERS uh, epidemic in 2012. Uh, It was first described, obviously, back in Wuhan. I think everyone realises it. uh, It it really initially came from there and then it's been spreading now. And it's now, I think, in 140 countries and there's been over 160,000 cases which and just the reported diagnosed cases, I mean, the, the amount of cases out there are, will be many times more than this. And there's been particularly affected areas like South Korea, Iran, and Italy. Um, and and I think the events in Italy have really focused everyone's minds because of the fact that they've got a very advanced healthcare system like we have here. And, and yet they have... Um, suffered from a real overwhelming number of patients needing high-level critical care um, because they were presenting with this acute respiratory distress syndrome and needing uh, intensive care to basically ventilate them for a period of time of normally about seven-ish days. And the the remarkable thing about this infection is it doesn't really, it's not like uh, it doesn't present in the normal way of a common cold necessarily. There, There seems to be this long period where you might not show an infection in fact many people might not show an infection so it means that it's spread very very rapidly and there's exponential spread and and that's one of the key things is containment seems to be very very difficult and very challenging for countries
1: right so you know some of the terms people may hear are um, this quarantine period right so we think that if you are uh, you need if you're at high risk, if you've been exposed, you need to be uh, out of contact with people for long enough so that you can know for sure if you have it. This is assuming you can't be tested, right? So this is why we're asking people to, uh, to isolate, to have some social isolation, and especially if they have any symptoms, to self-quarantine.
0: Yes, that's right. And one of the challenges we've had in the USA is we haven't had the testing kits. A lot of other countries have developed rapid testing kits, which is happening here as well. Uh, for instance, in South Korea, they have even drive-by uh, testing stations where they've been testing up to 10,000 patients a day where patients drive by in their car, stop, and within 10 minutes, there's a PCR test which they can then get a positive or negative result. And that's been very useful in trying to map the movement of the infection and contain it.
1: And is why do we not have that here? Is it do we not have the technology or the reagents or the machines? What what is stopping us from being able to do that?
0: Well, we do now have the tests. I think it's a question of getting them uh, available and in sufficient quantities. Uh, that's above my pay grade, obviously, to answer those questions. But my belief is that there's uh, a large number of testing kits going to be made available in the next week or so.
1: Okay, great. So we're hoping to have that. So, everybody, you mentioned, and I think people understand that this is thought of as affecting the lungs. People can develop anything from a mild respiratory symptom to uh, severe ARDS and need to be on a ventilator. It also, though, has some GI effects and maybe even some myocardial effects. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that, that some patients get a bit of diarrhea. I think that there's a mild and severe form. The severe form is a fever and, and a cough and shortness of breath. And then with other things, you can get chest pain. There's now increasing recognition as a myocarditis, so in, inflammation of the heart. And in some patients over in Seattle, my understanding is they've suffered cardiac arrest because of myocarditis. There's also another group of patients that develop acute kidney injury it's currently unclear whether that's the direct virus involvement or the fact that our critical care strategy is to limit fluid on these patients because they otherwise get very leaky lungs. And so therefore the kidney function is uh, basically being challenged because we're running these patients dry.
1: Right. Okay. So, and then who's getting this? So I think people have heard that unlike um, some other illnesses. Uh, the, the very young seem to be relatively doing relatively well, where the old, uh, folks older than 70 uh, tend to have more severe disease. And then there's some talk that healthcare workers, even controlling for kind of how healthy they may be, tend to have more severe disease. And that's a little unclear why. What is that kind of what we know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, obviously, but there is certainly the elderly patients and uh, those who have comorbidities such as heart, lung, kidney, smokers have a higher incidence of of problems and mortality. Uh, But it isn't completely confined to the elderly. Uh, There is an incidence in the below 50s, although it's low. Uh, But Mirko, I think, will be able to tell us more about the distribution of disease from Italy when he comes on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Do we... Uh, We know uh, you mentioned the kind of countries that have been um, hit the hardest so far in the United States. We've seen on the West Coast. uh, So Seattle is seeing a a huge number of infections. uh, And then obviously Washington state um, in general, there's some outside Seattle. There's uh, kind of movement from the West Coast. Do we think that that's kind of moving across now? Obviously, New York having uh, increasing numbers. It's really uh, kind of everywhere. Do we? What do we think? Are we thinking that this is going to um, have an exponential spread? Is there any way to know that?
0: Well, all we can do really is follow what's happened in other countries, and the fact that the spread does seem to be exponential. There's, we obviously know it's droplet-born, but there is some evidence coming out. It might be you might have live virus in the feces. There's two publications recently, one in JAMA. So that might be why the virus is spreading so quickly. But obviously, you're much more likely to get the virus if you're coming into contact with someone and in enclosed spaces. So just like either the, the flu virus or any, any other type of these infections. So I think we're still mapping the epidemiology. And also, we don't know if people get reinfected or not. Um, but I think the key thing is, as we know, that containment is really the only way to reduce the Uh, end point because we uh, from experience around the uh, other countries is if you can even a few days of containment get you a a reduced number that get infected there's uh, some calculations suggesting that every four days means you double the number of people who go to intensive care so the sooner you get containment the better
1: yeah that's a huge number obviously depending on what you start with and could could easily overwhelm and i think we'll hear from mirko um, kind of what they're facing there. Um, I want to ask you what um, we you mentioned that this is traveling obviously through droplets, uh, maybe through fecal uh, uh, passing as well. It lives on surfaces, uh, I think, for a little while from what we know. I, there was, I think just a very recent paper in the New England Journal looking at different um, different types of surfaces, cardboard, uh, plastic, metal, um and finding that you know at minimum we're talking about many hours up to a day or two where the virus can stay uh stay alive on these surfaces so that's a a huge problem for infection as well you can imagine walking through an area even if nobody sneezes or coughs or even touches you you put your hand on a railing or a doorknob that someone recently touched with virus you can get it that way Is that is that what your understanding is
0: yeah, it is, and that's why the basic uh, levels of hygiene are important. So to wash your hands for 20 seconds, which will kill the virus, not touch your mouth, eyes or nose, um, because that's the way you can self-infect. Uh, obviously, be away from people who uh, are infected with who coughs, sneezing, but obviously you can't always do that. And if you have got a sneeze or, or something is to sneeze, if you haven't got a handkerchief, to sneeze into and bin it then you would sneeze into your upper arm rather than your hands and then pass it on so these are basic things but very important to contain the spread of the virus
1: yeah absolutely so what do we know in terms of prevention right right now social isolation and and maybe we should just define that term what what is optimal social isolation right now what do we if we could just if we could tell people exactly what to do what would it mean
0: Again, I'm not speaking as an epidemiologist and speaking as a a critical care physician. So uh, I wouldn't really know the official um, definition of that. But what we do know that's happened uh, locally in Philadelphia and very sensibly, the schools have been closed. They've stopped people from going to large gatherings in our workplace at Penn alone. We're not allowed to have groups of 20 people and in fact even less than that now and we try and do all of our meetings by uh, some sort of skype or uh, over the phone we uh, even encouraging people to work from home Uh, so we're just trying to stop unnecessary contact journeys and and meeting of people
1: yeah yeah i think that's right and you know, we've got similar uh, kind of stuff happening here in Maryland, schools being closed, et cetera. Um, you know, I think the way we've interpreted is just limit contact as much as possible. You know, we're not, uh, we canceled our, we're, we're supposed to be away on spring break. We canceled that. We're staying home. We're not going out um, to restaurants. We're not, um, you know, having the grandparents come over, et cetera. We are really just I'm um, trying to isolate as much as possible, obviously, with the exception of needing to go to work. And I think we'll talk a little later about healthcare workers specifically and what healthcare workers can do both at work and, and at home. I guess let me ask you as someone who's obviously, you know, working in the ICUs at Penn and Mauricio can comment on this too. But what, when you're, when you're thinking about coming home after a day taking care of potentially infected patients, are you doing anything before you come home? Are you doing anything differently to try to protect your family?
0: Yeah, I mean, I haven't had direct um, exposure with someone with COVID-19 yet because we're in the early days, but I still behave as if I had. So I basically uh, frequent hand washing with soap um, and using the hand sanitizers on the wall at every opportunity. I think you can't do enough of that.
1: Yeah. Is there any, do you think, what, you know, are people thinking about the concern of if you're, I mean, presumably you're changing out of scrubs, obviously, and then going home uh, in different clothing than you wore to work. Uh, though on your way from the locker room through the rest of the hospital, you could obviously bump into things, touch railings, et cetera. Washing hands will take care of things you touch with your hands. I'm wondering if people are thinking, you know, now my, my clothes may get contaminated before I get home. Is that something that's being addressed at all, or we're just kind of sticking with the hands?
0: Um, we haven't done anything with our clothes yet. Um, I do.
2: I do.
1: What do you do, Maurizio?
2: I, essentially, I've changed my, my, my life routine significantly besides washing hands, et cetera. I change immediately as soon as I come home. Uh, definitely, I don't go back and forth with scrubs. I don't let my kids to touch me until I have changed. Um, I'm very, very careful about touching face and uh, and washing my hands and... and uh, uh i actually even thinking about changing shoes uh you know coming back from the hospital so it's it's uh, you know it's i think you have to be paranoid we have to live like that no matter what we feel about it and uh, and uh, and that's what we have to do uh my concern is that i look around in the community and i don't think nobody cares to give you an idea they cancel. The St. Patrick's Day Parade, uh, if you remember the the Philadelphia, the the, the, the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, Philadelphia was doomed because they did not give up a parade. And the mortality after the parade was immense. So believe it or not, uh, uh, the the, the St. Patrick's Parade was canceled only two days ago. Yet I saw a bunch of kids, college kids, going around bar hopping, uh, big groups of kids, so they did their own parade anyway, so we'll see what uh, what's going to happen in the next two weeks after that um, the, the 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 attention wasn't that high a week ago, but only a week ago we had the flower show the famous Philadelphia flower show brings in is the equivalent of a massive medical convention, so it brings in uh, lots of people from all over the country and uh, and that happened a week ago the the city was so crowded with people so that's that's uh, that's we can be careful in our own little community. I stopped going to see my mother, she's 81. I don't want to bring anything to her, right? But um, and she cannot see her grandchildren sadly, but uh, it is what it is, that's right.
1: So, I want to um, Mike, I want to I know you may have to pop out of the call at some point, so I want to um, let you if there's anything else you didn't get a chance to comment on that you wanted to, I want to give you that chance and then turn to Mirko. And really hear what they've uh, been been dealing with there in Italy, and what what they what lessons they can share with us. But Mike, any anything you want to comment on?
0: Well, I think we've got to plan this uh, approach too far. One is the social isolation and a statewide policy. I think there's clear indications we need uh, to cohort patients so that we don't contaminate our our other health services. And so, having a strategy within your hospital healthcare system is key. And I think Mirko will, um, he, he, that's the thing he's proposing. So, I think what's key is that we listen uh, to him and implement the appropriate strategies wherever you are providing healthcare.
1: Thank you, Mike. Um, and f- please feel free to chime in uh, as long as you're still on the call. So, Mirko, thank you again so much for. For taking some time. You must be exhausted, uh, and thank you for all the work you're doing there. Let me ask you, if you could take us through, you know, both what you're dealing with there and what, uh, after having been through, you know, what you've been through, what have you learned? What would you want us to take away?
3: So, uh, today we have 552 cases confirmed the WHO in Bergamo and in Milan we have 200 the distance from Milan and Bergamo is 50 kilometers so the first question is why this difference why we have 3,400 cases from the beginning in Bergamo and 1,700 cases in Milan. First of all is try to understand your epidemiology. Milan and Bergamo are very near. So if you have so huge difference, there is a reason. It's not the virus that is crazy. It's the man that is crazy. So something in the society is wrong. We are not... We do not understand what happens. Nobody the situation is totally under control because nobody has a good epidemiological data. And when, if you read the literature uh, in, in this period, most of the papers speak about ICU treatment. This is not a problem. When you see a paper that speaks about ICU situation, a problem, put in the garbage. Mm. Because if you, if you try to, tr- to treat your uh, uh, COVID virus with the ICU mentality, you fail. If you read the Singapore experience, uh, you, you can understand that uh, on December 31, uh, 2019, China informed the World Health Organization of a novel viral pneumonia. Do you, do you know when the Singapore people start to check the people in, in the country? Four days later four <laughs> days later and Singapore catch the first case of uh, coronavirus the third three of January 20 days after the discovery of the virus the truth that uh, Singapore received, uh, received a lot uh, Chinese uh, population, about uh, uh, 300,000 visitors per, per month. Do you know how many visitors arrive in, uh, in your country? I do not, in Italy. No. But this is an important question. Uh, si- Singapore experience, Taiwan experience, China experience teach us a lot. But uh, we are not uh, we are not a epidemiological mentality. If you read the Singapore paper, Singapore you can read you 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 don't find ICU word. You find the word. Public health. So after uh, when Singapore uh, understands the situation of China, promptly shift its public health response level to enhanced preparedness. That means that uh, activate all the public health facility to catch the virus. And Singapore, if you read the report of the case in Singapore, you don't find many cases. And Singapore is very near to the China. This is the main...
1: Mirko, Ah. let me just clarify. So you're saying if I'm understanding you, that, you know, if you wait until you've got your ICUs full and then you start thinking about this as an ICU issue, you're, you're way too late. You have to think of it as a public health issue. You have to do what Singapore did, which is be very, very proactive. And they were able to control yeah. this because they didn't wait around until they were dealing with an ICU crisis. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. What, what do you think, uh, when the virus arrived in uh, USA, in your opinion,
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think probably a lot lot earlier than we think. When? I don't know. Maurizio, do you know?
2: (laughs) No. Well, I'm reading um, uh, on social media from um, postings from people in Seattle. They think they had ARDS cases. In their ICUs already at the beginning of February, some of them died. So they want to go back and, and check. I think it's been there longer. I'm, I'm sure Mirko tell us this. Probably it's going to be even earlier than that. Uh, but uh, I suspect we are surrounded by COVID patients already, as we speak, and we have been for a while. Yeah, and, but Mirko is probably going to tell us more about this. Yeah, Mirko, so
1: you tell us. When was the first year?
3: So in my opinion, the first case recognized in China, because one doctor uh, so opened the mind and recognized uh, a strange pneumonia. This this was the first case. 8 December. How many cases recognized by doctors without open minds happens before?
2: Yeah. Exactly.
3: And the latency period may be de- 15 days so maybe the virus is is starting to spread in november how many travelers from china to usa in, from november from november to december yeah so in this period i I work in two places, in the central hospital of Bergamo, uh, 900 beds. And because of this situation, I work also in a little hospital healthcare uh, around Bergamo. In this hospital, uh, during the, the crazy night of this period, I speak a lot with the nurse, and every time I I try to ask to the nurse because there is no a lot doctor over there, do you remember strange case of pneumonia in this space? And two or three nurses told me I remember in December at the beginning of December several cases of pneumonia in Yang Uh, arrived in this hospital three times first time with antibiotic second time with antibiotic and third time after three weeks the the pneumonia was still here maybe it was coronavirus right so the virus is with you I think a long time ago
1: right so
3: yeah i think you're probably i I think think you are late
1: yes i think you're probably right so you now have you know and by you i mean in italy in some areas right i mean there's an overwhelming number of cases there a lot of critically ill patients um tell us a little about what you're seeing and and what you've learned from uh you know so clearly as you just said one huge lesson is We don't want to wait, we we need to be proactive, and we talked with Mike about some of the things we can do, and I think Maurizio will will give us some more uh, on that in a little bit, but tell me a little more about, you know, what you're actually seeing on the ground and what lessons you've learned both for uh, the general public and for healthcare providers.
3: Yeah. Uh, Today, in the main journal of uh, our city, Leco di Bergamo, you can find 10 pages of person die. 10 pages. All the journal, the journal is composed about these pages with person that die. Mm. This is the situation. Uh, we can, we have no space for patient that die because all the uh, Maurizio cimitero how do you say Cimitero in English graveyard or
1: cemetery mm-hmm. okay or cemetery are full yeah it's like yeah. it's like a war I mean this is what you people yes. talk yes. right about it during wartime
3: yes this is a, a real catastrophic situation It's an humanitarian crisis and yep. the the situation is totally un, uh, over, under over, uh, no, no control. So, right. for this reason, the mortality is so high because the number of patients in the hospital are too much, and we we are not able to face front to everything. The hospital of you uh, Lombardia is the one of the most rich region of of the north of Italy the internal product is the same of the germany so the the quality of life is the same of the usa the hospital is the same of the usa but we we were not proactive we we did not believe to the Chinese population. We we we, uh, we did not know how many travelers arrive from China every days. You know, the uh, the airport of Bergamo is uh, the second airport of the Italy for passengers. Mm. So, hmm.
1: so a lot epidemic,
3: of- epidemic situation, uh, Maurizio, uh, <laughs> uh, this is the story that Maurizio these days <laughs> heard a lot. But epidemic situation is, first of all, a social problem. So, you have to understand the social, uh, the key social point that promotes the diffusion of the virus because if you don't understand that you can increase uh ICU bed ICU bed every day every day but you can you can stop the contamination yeah. and uh, now we are in quarantine but we are not China there is no uh, there is no uh, uh dictator here so i'm not sure that we can maintain quarantine two months, three months. Uh, school in China are still closed. And uh, the peak of the contamination was one, two months ago. Wuhan hospital uh, did not receive any case in this moment. Any case. And our city is destroyed. What do you mean destroyed? I I I, I work for three years in the in the major crisis uh, with the Doctors Without Borders. It's the same situation. It's the same situation. So yeah, yes, we are more rich, but. What that I'm explaining to my, to my chief, but they don't understand, is if every city around you has the same situation, this is very catastrophic because how can the economic situation restart? It's impossible. If the problem stay in Lombardia region, my region, is the most populated region of the of the Italy. Italy ha- has sixty million of habitants and Lombardia has ten million of habitants. This density is one of the reasons of the contamination. Because right. of, so this is one of the reasons. The second reason I think, but I have no data. Why? Because in Bergamo there is no a surveillance system. So nobody uh, nobody search the, the reason for this incredible contamination. This is incredible, but we don't know why. Uh, I have an idea because I observe the people that work. People for the first uh, Two, three weeks work in contaminated fashion. No protection,
1: uh,
3: no formation. Two weeks in an epidemic situation is a dramatic period. You know, every day here seems uh, one year before. The, The situation is totally different.
1: Uh, Mirko, what do you mean by that? Every day is like one year before.
3: Because uh, yesterday we have uh, 3,000 cases and today 400 cases. Uh, last week we have 200 people with COVID in our hospital and now we have 500 people in our hospital. 500 people with COVID in uh, in a hospital with nine hundred bed. What do you mean? And five hundred people in critical situation. Normally these people have to stay in intensive care, but we have no space. Right. For this reason the mortality is high.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And how how are you deciding, you know, when you have Multiple patients who need a ventilator and not enough ventilators, uh, or multiple patients who need to be in the ICU and not enough ICU beds. What are you doing to address that?
3: The stronger people survive, the other die. Yeah, it's not med- that's not medicine, this yeah. is a, a, an automatic triage
1: so you're saying the ones who survive long enough are going to get the intensive care the, the ones uh, who survive until there's a bed or a ventilator
3: so we have uh, we increase a lot bed of intensive care now, now we have 80 bed of intensive care in in, uh, in our hospital every bed is COVID so if a people with traumatic injury arrive in the hospital there is no bed there, all, there is no free bed for, for him right do you do we understand the situation?
1: I don't think I could. I mean, I, I, I hear you and I, I'm just in, you know, it's, it's hard to, I think, process. It sounds just like like we said, a, a, a war zone or, you know, just a complete overwhelming of the of the infrastructure. But it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, obviously, every single critical care bed you have is taken up with COVID patients. The next, you know, every other patient who comes in, there's no bed so they either survive because they're strong or they you know and or yeah. they get over it or, yeah. or they or they die and they become one of those 10 pages uh, of names
3: uh, we can intubate patient
1: over 70 70 year we can intubate you cannot no so the policy is if you're over 70 you don't get a breathing tube
3: uh, might can I speak uh, uh, freely, Mauricio? I think so. My chief uh, establish an evidence-based score. Your, uh, uh, his uh, your evidence-based score, and invite people to do this.
1: But there is no, is not writing. And you're saying the score would determine whether you get a, in, a ventilator or not.
3: The score is uh, if you have uh, only one organ failure, lung, I intubate you. If you have two organ
1: failure, there is no possibility. Yeah, this is like wartime because, triage. Yeah.
3: Right, because this is the problem. I have 70 patients in the ICU, and I have 40 patients that wait to enter in ICU. But the period of the uh, respiratory failure may, may, may be two weeks. Right, right. absolutely. So. And another, another thing, the 500 people that stay out of the ICU are critical patients. Uh, with uh, non-invasive ventilation, with helmet CPAP, but there is no specialized uh, people to treat them because in this uh, in, in in this area there is nurse from uh, uh, oculistic uh, area, from surgery, from everywhere. So right. they have, you you you. You can create competence in one
1: day. Right. Right. No. I mean, you you, obviously you have to use whatever resources you have. Let me ask you about the mortality rate that you're seeing. We've been uh, hearing, you know, that overall we're looking at something as low as 0.5 percent up to maybe 3 percent, but in in vulnerable. In
3: this this situation, the our mortality is not a good number because. We have not the possibility to treat the patient as usual.
1: Right. So it's going to be artificially inserted So
3: it's a stupid number. Right. It's very high, but it is not the mortality of the that uh, that usually this patient have in normal condition.
1: Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. So this is what the mortality you're seeing is not due to the disease. It's due to the lack of ability to treat the disease.
3: Yes. Yes. Yeah. But. Um, the lethality the letality of this virus is very low. When you read when you read that it is 2 3% is too high is too high. The problem of this virus is that it is very contagious. 10 times that the SARS. Right. So SARS did 300 um, uh, confirmed case in, in six in six months, and in, uh, in China, and in one month, the COVID uh, gives 70,000 confirmed cases, ten times more. So the problem is the the capacity to to spread in the population. And the problem is that this high capacity to spread destroys your health system. But not for a day, for the next month, because we don't know when we can take care of the other patient. Right.
1: Right. No, I think that's the...
3: There is no other patient than COVID in the hospital. Where is the other now? We don't right. know. We don't
1: know. Right. The whole hospital is full of the COVID patients. So that is clearly true that in, in the numbers and what that you're dealing with are going to be inflated. You know, uh, the there have been some estimates that in the vulnerable population, patients older than 70, nursing home patients, for example, here, um, the mortality may be higher right in that population, maybe as high as 10 to 20 percent. I think that was based at least in part on. Uh, the nursing home in Seattle, where uh, out of 100 uh, nursing home residents, uh, you know, I think about uh, 14 died, which would be a 14 percent mortality rate there. Um, but overall, because the younger patients do better, we think that, you know, as you said, it's, a, it's overall a, a much lower mortality rate. But the, infects, the infectivity is quite high.
3: No, it's not the mortality. It's the lethality. It's the difference. It's two different concepts because this is the another problem uh, on the paper that you read. Lethality is the concept that is the total number of the dead on the total number of the infected patient. What do you, uh, and if, if you read intensive care paper, you can read mortality about the patient recovered in your hospital but the base, the denominator of the infected patient is more, more, more higher because most people did did not arrive in the hospital, have a pouches symptomatic uh, uh, infection as asymptomatic, but with virus. This is
1: your denominator. Right, but we don't know what that number is
3: because this is the cause of it. if you if you know this you you can understand the, the the travel of your virus if you don't know this it's impossible to understand what happens
1: right and if I'm understanding you correctly what you're saying is that there are a lot of there are a lot more cases than we know about because there's a lot of people out there who have either already had it and never knew it or who have it now and are asymptomatic and that if we knew that number, that would be a much bigger denominator. And so the, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, the that two, makes
3: sense. The, the two main epidemiological, uh, key issue that you have to remember is children, uh, are asymptomatic. Only 1% of children, uh, uh have severe case. And so s- school probably is, a uh, is a situation where the virus diffused very, very much. And the second condition is that the Chinese population, when did some uh, survey on the asymptomatic patient, found, found the same viral load of virus in asymptomatic patient than in symptomatic patient
1: right right so and this
3: is and this is that is an important epidemiological issue
1: right and that gets to what you were saying about the prevention is that if we have people with high viral loads walking around asymptomatic then waiting until we have our hospitals full and trying to deal with it there is is way too late we have to we have to do the public health the social isolation that we were discussing before let me. So that that's clear. I mean, I think there's no question that it, it sounds like such a, and and for good reason, an important thing that you want to get across is not to wait to do the necessary uh, public health interventions now and uh, to try to prevent the results that you've seen there. What else? Let's turn to the things that you have learned uh, in terms of caring for these patients in the hospital. What? Um, What are you doing uh, to try to provide the best care you can? I mean, one thing is obviously trying to figure out who gets limited resources. But then for the patients who are being taken care of, who are in the hospital or who are on ventilators, um, what are you doing for them?
0: So
3: uh, I see several patients with COVID in a hospital and I see different patients at home and they see different patients in emergency room. So, in my opinion, most patients with mild, moderate uh, coronavirus pneumonia may stay at home. If you you can catch early the, the, the level of saturation, probably you can bring at home oxygen, Uh, you can help us to to feed give uh, them uh, some uh, nutritional uh, composition and uh, if you can do this you put in place a great system to control your epidemic situation because you close your virus in a home but this uh, this uh, is an important changement of the of the health system because right. and it's it's very difficult to prepare this. But you need only two things: matter and oxygen.
1: Right. So you're saying that patients who, people who have a mild or even moderate uh, case. Uh,
3: mild, for sure, mild for sure, moderate I don't know, but mild can stay at home, totally. And the mild cases are, are uh, very, is a great part of the case. You have to avoid that they arrive in a hospital because probably they have 90 of saturation, and if you give them two liters of oxygen,
1: probably is enough. Right, and so you're actually having people who would normally be in a hospital with pneumonia, receiving oxygen, uh, are getting that at home now because there's, there is no hospital bed for them.
3: So at the beginning, every people arrive in a hospital, and this was the problem arrived with ambulance and the ambulance was uh, in the ambulance was the there was driver and volunteers without uh, protection for at least two three weeks and this was one for in my opinion one of the, one of the most important vector of the epidemic situation and the people, uh, in, the first, uh, in the first day, the people arrived in the hospital and uh, was put not in isolated area. Stay in emergency room, waiting for the results of the confirmation. In this period, uh, the results of the confirmation with PCR take about uh, two days to arrive. Right. So, in these two days, the virus arrived everywhere.
1: Right, right. So, if they had never come to the hospital, it would have been much better. Yeah. So, Mauricio, is that, are you aware, is this being discussed at all uh, in this country, the idea of, of potentially patients who normally would come to a hospital keeping them at home, even on home 2
2: As far as I'm aware, I don't think so. I haven't heard about it. Okay, uh, well. I don't, uh, I don't
1: honestly do not think so. Yeah, I haven't heard it either. Now, obviously, COVID is.
3: I, I think one, um, because I, I I saw several patients at home. And what I learned is that uh, when the patient has fever, uh, probably the lung compromission started and probably the hypoxia starts slowly every day, day by day, because most, most patients, also old patients, arrive in a hospital with 70 of saturation, and they speak well, they are not very, uh, they are a good mental state. This is not normal, because this is the situation that I see In my PICU with the congenital patient. My congenital patient has seven year saturation and you ask, incredible. (laughs) They live with seven year saturation. And this is the same situation that uh, I I found in most people. Uh, So I think if you can catch the oxygen or the saturation at the beginning, you can treat them with oxygen and avoid the deterioration of the organism because this patient goes in mountain for 15 days and nobody gives nutrition. So it's normal that you crash. I don't know if uh, if I explain the situation. Maurizio? You do very well, Mirko.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think that makes sense, you know, is that uh, it's, clearly we know people can, with isolated hypoxia, can do just fine. I mean, people who climb Mount Everest uh, without oxygen obviously are up there with very low saturations. Um, and so you absolutely, uh, it sounds like what you're seeing is people who slowly develop this hypoxemia. And because it developed slowly, they had time to, you know, acclimatize to it, so to speak. They are coming in with you know low saturations, but doing otherwise fine. And you're saying this could this could be treated, especially if it was caught early, potentially at home, and prevent them coming into the hospital at all.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, we talked about cohorting patients in the hospital. Uh, Mike mentioned this uh, earlier. So uh, you know that's something I know, Mauricio. You guys are working on. We've done is to have, uh, you know, these are not patients you want to have one in, in one unit in the negative pressure room and another in another unit, you know, just the potential for cross-contamination. You want to have a dedicated area of the hospital where these patients um, are kept. Now, obviously, miracle for you guys, you know, your whole hospital is taken up. So that's, you know, we're kind of past that point. But maybe that's one way that we, as we start to see more cases, can hopefully prevent the kind of spread both to healthcare workers and to other patients. Um, that's, that you guys have seen in Italy. Maurizio, that you think you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Um, but we should be very proactive. I'm not entirely sure how much uh, institutions around the country are thinking in those terms. Um, my concern is that in the United States, the way the healthcare system works, there is no central coordination. Uh, not, I'm not only talking about uh, on the federal level, but also at the statewide or even citywide. Uh, we have major big cities with major academic centers uh, that probably don't really have a line of communication, so it's really hard to understand. I don't have a clear understanding uh, what the role of the city, but that may be my ignorance, Um, because I think the ideal situation, you should protect some hospitals from COVID patients and deal with this disease in certain hospitals that have the capability and the skills to take care of them, and preserve other hospitals for other functions, their regular functions, and uh, try to continue to maintain a minimal, decent level of uh, routine care. Trauma, labor and delivery, emergency surgeries, people continue to get sick, they get strokes, they get MIs. Um, My biggest fear, if I understand... The U.S. medical system, my biggest fear is that these patients are going to fa- start flooding all hospitals, including peripheral hospitals, where they don't have really a preparedness plan, right. and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and uh, they will be overwhelmed, they will not manage as well, the hospitals will be contaminated, personnel and, uh, and patients will get infected, and then once they get overwhelmed, they will start flooding patients to the city hospitals. And, uh, and instead, this peripheral hospital should be protected, um, not only, and I think that's a recipe for, uh, for, uh, for disaster, or you can have also the other mechanism where, where they're going to see the patients, try to take care of them at the beginning, get scared because this patient can take time to be extremely toxic, and they're going to start immediately thinking about, uh, oh my God, we need ECMO call for a referral, send her to the city hospital, and still in the in the process, they have contaminated their hospital, the ambulance, the or helicopter, and the, and and uh, and the accepting hospital. So, right. I I'm hope I'm wrong. I suspect that uh, we are not there yet in terms of coordinating, and and this type of uh, thinking is not uh, being implemented. Is not um, we're, they were not there essentially. Right. Right.
1: Mirko, are you are you guys doing any ECMO for these patients or no?
3: There is no good question. There is no good question. There is no space for ECMO. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
3: If we put ECMO in one patient, maybe 10 patients die because right. so there is yeah. no space for ECMO in this
2: situation. Right. When I right. asked, when I asked, uh, when I asked the same question to one of my friends, he started laughing and said, "Who cares about ECMO? You need ventilators, you need nurses, you need beds, you need medications, antibiotics, pumps. You need all of that." And he couldn't stop laughing, thinking about ECMO. They've done some ECMOs in Milan, uh, a couple of them. Some of them have a legitimate indication, for example, a couple of VA ECMOs for myocarditis and severe heart failure. But that's really a drop in the ocean, honestly. This is not what we're talking about. Talking to other colleagues around the country, I still think that the mind frame that's being used is a classic mind frame for severe influenza epidemic. They're thinking, this is another H1N1. Uh, we're going to be taking care of it. We're going to be doing advanced care and we're going to get out of it. Instead, the way they should be thinking about, about this is disaster management, disaster planning. This is an act of, uh, uh, is the equivalent of an act of uh, massive terrorism that happens every day. Every day a bomb explodes in your city and uh, every day the bomb gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Be prepared for that. Don't worry about uh, uh, how much advanced stuff are you going to be able to do because this is, we're going to go back to 30 years ago. The good news is that this is, you know, in people who are, don't have many comorbidities, this seems to be a relatively easy disease to treat in a way. So we don't really do anything too fancy. We need good respiratory care and, uh, and basic critical care. And we should be able to pull at least the patient who have a chance to pull them out,
1: um, right? But what about healthcare workers, Mirko? How how much are you seeing the the providers who are caring for these patients uh, contracting COVID?
3: There is no surveillance system on the for the personnel, so we don't know. No, because okay. all the all, all, this, all the PCR RNA are are made on the
1: patient. Right. So we're not because, you're not testing the healthcare workers.
3: But this is the this is a stupid choice because when you have an epidemic situation, every people has COVID. If you live if you work in the malaria context, people without text. When the patient arrives in the hospital with malaria, with a the fever, they do diagnosis of malaria. So the COVID patient is a typical COVID patient. The symptoms are very typical. Is uh, as, as Mauricio said, it's not difficult to manage. You have to do what you do usually with the, uh, your IRDS patient? Many people are writing a lot about uh, uh, what type of medication for, for this patient. But if you have a good system, uh, few things, good action, you can manage this. But if you don't use DPI, if you don't put in place surveillance system, you destroy your your hospital. Right. And this is what and this is what, what happens in Bergamo
1: Right. So, what other are there other? Now, um, I think
3: yeah.
1: in in uh,
3: there is also in China's population about 50 30 percent of the personal is is ill is a lot. But the problem is that the other people are work very hard seven days a day a week. So how much time can you continue this rhythm of work? Right. The, the, the people is not able to live with this uh, situation of uh, fragility, of precarity. You, you see every time die people, the people stay in hospital without parents. So uh, the, re- the, the post-traumatic stress disorder in the health workers is very high. Hmm. And uh, so the, the people uh, has not uh, only clinical pathology, but also mental pathology.
1: Right, so right. Because of I, course, I li- yeah.
3: When you, live, when you work in humanitarian crisis, the mental health of the staff is the main issue.
1: Right. I can't even imagine what, what you and your colleagues there are, have been going through, and that takes a real toll. So I want to ask you, Mirko, if there's anything else you, um, you know, we've talked about the importance of, of preventive techniques, trying to av- uh, avoid spread, obviously, in every way we know how, with is so- social isolation, effective Um, you know, cohorting of patients uh, when they do get to the hospital, trying to keep anyone home who can be home. Uh, Testing needs to be emphasized. Um, And we've we've at least in this country, according to Mike, we are going to start seeing more rapid testing, the likes of which they've had in South Korea for some time now. What about Mike had mentioned to me when we were just talking offline earlier about uh, what is when you do have someone who is in the hospital, who's getting more hypoxic, escalating on oxygen, do you, are you intubating them early to try to avoid a, a kind of emergency intubation so it can be more controlled so this was
3: a uh, uh, um, a question that in the first period of the epidemic uh, situation in the webinar people uh, try to respond because some people Uh, some people say we have to intubate before some people say we have to intubate after in my opinion it depends about your capacity to manage your patient in non-invasive ventilation Uh, if you give non-invasive ventilation but you don't control very, very well the nutrition status probably your patient goes upstairs, you have to intubate uh, I see my hospital uh, this situation, so the people think that uh, if you give uh, helmet sip up or non-invasive ventilation is enough no, you have to give nutrition, because I know it's uh, probably uh, I say stupid uh, thing, but this is what uh, I see in my hospital people speak about ECMO and uh, after that uh, don't don't think uh, the simple thing I I said said to Maurizio uh, remember pronation is good also during uh, uh, spontaneous ventilation so I have no weight intubation to prone the patient why? it's the same uh, I mean is the same physiopathology. I mean, the, the, the lung, uh, the, 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 the posterior uh, area of the lung, uh, when you are ill, uh, uh, are less ventilated. So prone your patient. Try when you, when uh, we do this uh, in uh, in uh, spontaneous ventilation, you, you, you do a test. You you I I, I try a lot uh,
1: improvement in this. Right. So treat this is, is you know, when you see ARDS, you want to think about your typical treatments. Um, the nutrition thing is an important point as well. So when you intubate, again, these are not, you know, especially for the surgical ICU folks, these are not post-op patients who have had bowel surgery. These are, are patients with an presumably an isolated respiratory illness. And so you can feed them right away, right? You want to intubate, if you're intubating them, you want to intubate them and put in a feeding, an oral gastric or a nasal gastric tube, along with that, and along with that ET tube, so that you can start feeding right away. Is that right? Uh,
3: um, I don't, I, I, don't understand really the question, Mauricio. Can, can, can you help me? Uh,
2: he's asking you if you think a patient should be fed um, early, as soon as they you intubate them, or even before, place an nasal gastric tube. Uh, and uh, and feed them aggressively because sounds everybody talking about feeding these patients seems to be an important. Uh, you, aspect. so
3: sorry m- maybe I, I I say stupid thing but when the patient arrive in your hospital probably is uh, at home at least one week uh, without it because is uh, so hypoxic. Then, uh, he, he, he has no possibility to eat and uh, it's very important uh, as a measure to maintain a good status of nutrition I think this is the, one of the reasons why the patient arrives in hospital with so severe pneumonia because uh, uh, the symptomatology Uh, start one week before with a night fever people describe one, two, three days, four days of a fever of 40 and uh, uh, paracetamol doesn't work and all this thing is very difficult at home because you have no mm, you don't want it in this condition Uh, for an elderly people this is is most important,
0: right? And,
1: so, if you've got somebody who hasn't eaten for a week, they come in again. This is the importance of feeding them early because if you now wait another couple of weeks, uh, you know they're really going to going to have been too long without nutrition. Um, yeah, Mauricio, let me ask you if you sorry, sorry. Yeah. no, uh, no I,
3: In uh, I found several times. Um, patient quite young 60 50 of years and when I was called to to go in ambulance to take them uh, I, f- I found them uh, die on the floor and w- when I asked to the to the parents but this patient had some comorbidities the answer was not what happens uh, I think the grade of hypoxia that uh, the patient uh, maintains for a long period may induce maybe heart attack, cardiac failure. When, uh, when I go to, to take some patient, elderly patient, and uh, they try saturation before to, to, to transfer the patient, I can I can catch seventy.
1: Right. Right. So uh, and and it's hard, right? Because you were saying that some some patients who are have mild disease, you know, you kind of want to keep at home on some oxygen. Um, obviously, you, you I guess if you do that, you give them some targets and, and a pulse oximeter and tell them if it falls, yes. you know, you need to come in if it falls to X, Y, or Z
3: you you have you have telemedicine you can use it
1: right right but
3: you, you have uh, you have to improve the 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 capacity we have of your a, of your,
2: uh, of your uh, area peripheral area so right. most mo- most our institutions have powerful home care services at least yeah. in certain cities i think we have to mobilize those uh, yeah. early enough that's, uh, that's something that uh, I don't know how many are thinking about that. I'm proud of my institution because I think we've been very proactive and we're really planning way ahead. But uh, I think that's something also people around should start considering. Uh, use your home care system to go. to go Send your home nurses, home okay. physical therapists, check on the saturation, bring them oxygen. These are things that can be done, and they can be done mobilized relatively quickly. Yeah, uh, and Mauricio, let me, let the, me ask the, you... This,
3: yeah. This is a proactive. Consider that this is a proactive action to reduce the contamination. Right. You have. You have to. You have to uh, change your mind and think that uh, the most important thing is to isolate the patient and reduce the contamination. So you right. have to think every action in this direction.
1: Right. And, and so, Mauricio, I was going to ask you, if you, you know, you've obviously been in close contact with Merco, you are aware of what's going on in Italy, and now you are one of the people helping at Penn to, uh, you know, get prepared for what, you know, we don't know, but what, what may turn out to be a similar situation. What are you, what lessons have you taken? What are you guys doing? What do you recommend that that other folks who may be listening uh, do to prepare?
2: Well, we our dean has decided to stop all uh, elective surgeries and, and clinic activities, um, and uh, we are making escalation plans. We uh, are still, still working on them, but we are, we are so I can give you any details. But the plans include uh, um, units that will be dedicated to these patients to avoid contamination uh, of, uh, of, of the hospital and on the other patients um we are working on protocols so we're liberally using the inputs from italy to create our own protocols the italians have created a very nice uh protocol that have been um published by crt which is european the italian society we've been i've been taking inputs from here and there we've been integrating them so we're going to create our own guidelines for airway management mechanical ventilation nutrition i'm going to emphasize that even more now after talking to Mirko. um so these are all things that people should be getting to do, start doing now, now. Like I, I told you before, talking to some of my colleagues around the country, the impression I'm getting is this is serious, but it's just a pneumonia, I will deal with it. No, it's not like this. Talk, talk to your administrators, talk to to everybody to try to create a, 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 a crisis management state that has to be in place now, because I think we don't have much time. Uh, Uh, there are more things i would say also if i if i were to give a recommendation would be think creatively of ways you can deliver intensive care uh because again that's what we're going to have to do anyway uh in in all kinds of situations on the floors on the in the operating rooms uh think about how you restructure your 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 uh your staffing and your, your, uh, your call schedule and your, your model for, for, for staffing patients and, and, and uh, ICUs and rooms. For example, think about using non-ICU providers to take care of this patient. I'm talking about anesthetists. We have a legions of anesthesiologists and residents in anesthesia and nurse anesthetists. This is a relatively basic critical care, honestly. You don't need to do stuff that is too sophisticated. We can teach them and create teams, like we do in Italy, pyramidal teams where you have intensive care physicians supervising other non-intensive care clinicians taking care of of the patients. Um, Think about ways you can deliver positive pressure in a safe way without ventilators. That's another problem we're going to have. The Italians use liberally helmet CPAP, which is not available in this country. So we need to figure out ways to do it. People, there's, a, there's a lot of concern about using non-invasive ventilation right. uh, because it's been associated to spread of the virus during the SARS epidemic. Same concern applies to high-flow nasal cannula, although nobody really knows how much spreading there's going to be. Uh, the helmets are ideal because they allow you to deliver positive pressure in a, in a simple way, uh, just CPAP, because in a lot of patients, that's all you need. Right. And Put in, put in an antimicrobial filter, you can actually isolate the patient from the rest of the room, which is fantastic. Right. Uh, um, problem is that we don't have them. There are ways to go around this, uh, but we're still on our side. We're still working on it.
1: Right. So just uh, let me let me just say, in case folks aren't familiar, so when we talk about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, we're talking about BiPAP, CPAP. Uh, exactly. But the problem with those is that while when the patient breathes in it's fine. When they breathe out, it just goes out into the room. And so what's thought is that that positive pressure helps to, uh, to create more viral particles, leaving that mask and going out into the room and therefore increasing the potential for spread. The helmet that you mentioned, which we don't have, uh, prevents that or can prevent it because it kind of seals the patient's head inside the helmet, gives them the positive pressure, but then the outflow doesn't have to go out into the room. High flow nasal cannula, uh, is what we're doing as a first step with a mask over the patient's mouth and nose, you know, maybe that's better uh, as a first step and then intubation straight from there without going to BiPAP or CPAP.
0: Exactly. Uh,
2: one thing I've learned is that these patients tend to deteriorate very fast. So if I have to give a clinical pearl, is that patients will come in with uh, mild opacities uh, on chest x ray and they will evolve uh, very quickly. So don't wait to intubate these patients until they're crashing. So what I heard from some, and Mirko can confirm what some practitioners do, they give a small trial of non-invasive positive pressure. And if the patient requires a high fraction of oxygen and they don't get better within a short time span, like half an hour or an hour, they will just go ahead and intubate. Um, that's a uh that's Again, that's uh, that's being aggressive. That's aggressive, but uh, I think that's what we have to do. And um, we may end up with a lot more patients intubated, intubating in conditions that are different from where we intubate normally because of their evolution, but also because of the concern for getting infected, getting nurses and, and then respiratory therapists and physicians
1: infected. Right. So, uh, you know, big things we've talked about in terms of what people can do. So, I think let's look at. Um, Actually, before we summarize, let me ask you healthcare workers. So obviously a lot of anxiety uh, in healthcare workers who know that they're going to be taking care of more and more probably already are, certainly are going to be taking care of more and more of these patients. Uh, what, if any, what advice should we be recommending? And this is obviously changing rapidly and, and will probably be, whatever we say now, maybe out of date tomorrow. But, you know, should people, let's talk about anesthesiologists, you're going to see your patient in pre op. Are we just should we just be wearing masks and eye protection now for everybody? Uh, you know, how what kind of protection, what kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, what should we be recommending to healthcare workers in general? Obviously, taking care of someone with known COVID is different than taking care of someone who we don't know if they have it or not or don't don't suspect known COVID patients obviously should be isolated. We should be doing, you know, full protective equipment, uh, probably a PAPR, you um, if not, an N95 maybe, probably a paper is better, is what we think. Um, but what about patients who, who may not have it, but we're not sure?
3: This is a good question, <laughs> because uh, yeah. uh, we did not uh, do anything about your question. <laughs> and this was the most problem because uh, we found a lot of patients uh, infected after surgery. Right. So also, also for this, for this question is important to, to do proactive. So I think it's important to, to start a cluster survey on patient on personnel to, to find one case. If you find one case, Uh, maybe it's important to start a DPI system for uh, a COVID infection area. One case is enough. Don't don't wait for 10 cases, 20 cases. One case is
1: enough. Right. And Mauricio, what are you guys doing around that? What are you telling people to do?
2: So we're in the process of defining what uh, defining what the high risk intubation is, and that's a little controversial. Uh, of course, patients who are coming from outside with fever and respiratory symptoms, we will also use all the precautions. The question is, what do you do when somebody goes in respiratory failure on the floor who's been there for other reasons? I think for now we can just uh, we can we can uh, continue to screen patients for respiratory symptoms. So I would say anybody who's coming from outside. And with, with, a, with a suspected pneumonia, uh, should be assumed to be COVID no matter what, no matter what the testing status is. Um, for, uh, for a while, I think it's going to be fine, but I think it may change because once uh, everybody, you know, once, once the rate of infection becomes so high, you know, you may assume that your colon from yesterday may have it. So we may end up doing everybody like that, although it doesn't sound terribly practical. Um, it's a working process. Uh, for uh, for uh, for the actual intubation itself, uh, there are very uh, there are articulated protocols for how you wear and how you uh, take off your uh, your protective equipment. Yeah. I are, we are prescribing N95 uh, with uh, with a gown and uh, with gloves, uh, double gloving, actually, right. uh, um, and, and a face shield. I would recommend a facial, not just goggles. Um, I, was, I suspect a lot of people will feel more, even more comfortable using papers for all intubation. Um,
1: right. That's what we're so,
2: doing. Yeah, if you, 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 definitely, you and I definitely need to use a paper because with facial hair, yeah. uh, I would say use a paper. And if it's available, use it for all intubation, that to be said. Learn how to place it. And actually, it's a nice system, a system we're adopting is the body system. So one person gets dressed and undressed, and one person watches that person. Right. That's another thing where telemedicine comes handy, because we're going to use telemedicine to, to monitor this process. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and that's a nice thing, honestly. Um, let me see if I'm missing anything. Uh, there's a broad definition of what uh, an aerosolizing procedure is. We are considering the high-risk intub- the procedures, intubations, but also bronchoscopies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are recommending not to do bronchoscopy unless you strictly have to, uh, like, Try and, and try to limit awake bronchoscopies especially. They are probably the worst ones. And, um, and other things but that, that, that we, we, can, we, we, can, we can imagine. But uh, essentially treat uh, most of your intubation as high risk because uh, the chances of your
1: patient having it are becoming higher and higher every day. Yeah, and yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, when I'm personally, I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to, you know, if I'm in the operating room for a given day, I'm going to see my patient in pre-op. I'm probably going to wear a mask and a face shield. Just, you know, that's just going to be my approach, right? I mean, it's, I think we need to be, assuming like you said and like Mirko said you've got to assume that some people have it could be your colleagues could be the patients and i think not not even for our own protection but so that we don't end up spreading it um so uh, you know that that seems like why not you're going to wear a mask and eye protection in the operating room anyway keep it on when you go to the pre-operative area i think that makes sense what do you think i think it's I, th- word, yeah.
2: I think
3: i think uh, i think makes sense is a is a is a great changement because you know uh, when you walk you, you see another people and uh, you you think maybe maybe it could be him that uh, give me the virus it's right. not it's not good to live in this situation but this is the reality now right. so now the uh, our city are deserted. When you when you walk, uh, you stay two meters. Right. Uh, nobody give the hands. I I live uh, at home uh, It's two weeks that uh, uh, I sleep alone without uh, my wife. Right. Uh, I, I can uh, I can stay with my child. This is right. the situation no? because now the epidemic is uh, uh, without control. Right. And. If you don't start before uh, to do a paranoic, as as Mauricio said, uh, your life uh, will be destroyed and you don't know when you can restart your normal life. This is the situation of the low-income country. It's the same. It's the
1: same. Right. Right. Now, let me just ask you too. And, and we, we, I know we don't know much about this, but, you know, there's some talk about, uh, thinking about, uh, you know, treatments and, and vaccines. So, you know, I think this is very early on, but convalescent serum is something that I've heard is being thought about. Can you take the, you know, serum of people who have had the, the virus and, and recovered and, uh, you know, get antibodies either for treatment or for prevention? You know, maybe a small inoculate dose in healthcare workers, for example, to maybe be preventative. And then, of course, vaccines. Uh, But is anything, are you, either of you aware of any of this that's actually being done or anywhere near being put into place?
3: So now uh, there is a protocol in place implemented by, by infectivology. And we give the protocol uh, is composed by two antiretroviral used for uh, HIV to stop the the protease uh, action and by chloroquine. And in the last week uh, uh, is what put in place uh, ritonavir, the inhibitor of uh, interleukin-6 that was used in... uh, Cytokine uh, release syndrome after chemotherapy. It Mm -hmm. seems to reduce the inflammatory response. So uh, I'm not very excited about that for for this um, because. if you don't use well the helmet, if you don't uh, give nutrition, you do inhibitor of the interleukin six. Uh, for me, it is not there is no sense before you do the the good action to treat your respiratory failure, and after that you think uh, the medication. Take present that there is a big ethical issue in catastrophic situation because the consensus is an issue the, the ethical uh, committee is an issue because you have no time and I discuss a lot with, uh, with some people of the hospital because now the consensus process for Ritonavir uh, implemented in this way people, dyspnoic people stay in the room without parents and the doctor arrive and asks to dyspnoic people to give consensus for retornability so what do you think? Is a consensus this or is, a, is another thing?
0: Right, for right. Me so you're it, saying
1: that consent is an issue especially for uh, people who may be sick enough to be uh, you know not fully with it or certainly for kids um, you yes yeah
3: if if I'm going to die probably I give consent for everything right right but this um, is a big issue in a catastrophic uh, humanitarian situation there is a right. lot of paper about that right, right so sure. be uh, be prepared also for this because there is a lot of space of research yeah. But uh, you have to think uh, about your ethical uh, method to to, de- to do this, uh, put, to, to
2: put in process this uh, research uh, strategy. Right. I, I completely agree with Mirko. I, I started a suggestion to say get your ethical committee to start writing a document now because yeah. you may end yeah. up using it. Right. Yeah. Um,
1: so... You know, things, let me try to kind of summarize some of the stuff we've talked about that people can keep in mind. I mean, the biggest one, and I think this is can't be hammered home enough, is the prevention. We need people to be, uh, as, as now is happening, right? Schools are closing here. Uh, people are being asked to stay home. I think one of the big challenges in this country, in the United States, is that, uh, yeah, Maurizio.
2: They're not staying at home. I just got a text message by one uh, of my colleagues that are bar hopping you know, right. well, exactly. Okay. So I was
1: going to say one of the big challenges in this country is that people don't like to be uh, told what to do. Right. And And that voluntary asking people to stay home, people like to go to their restaurants and their bars. And, you know, I think that's the challenge we're seeing now is that, you know, it does take self-sacrifice. You have to stay home. And there's been some interesting articles in the media saying, hey, look, if you're not worried about getting it yourself, that's not the only issue, right? It's that you're you're going to infect other people, especially older people, right? If you, I mean, one I think example a lot of us are dealing with is having to think about whether the grandparents come take care of the kids, which maybe for a lot of people the health care uh, these childcare they normally rely on, and we've had to say no, right? We don't want our our grandparents coming in to take care of the kids because that that puts them at risk, and they're in that high risk category. Um.
2: I don't want to sound too harsh, but there are a lot of young people who are dying. And the messages people are getting still uh, is, this is a bad influenza. Don't worry, it will affect only old and sick people. So if you're 25, you uh, don't care. But there are actually you know, a fair amount of uh, 20-year-old or even 18-year-old, I believe, also in Italy, who are on a ventilator in the ICU. Right. Uh, actually, so I think yeah. should emphasize in in. Uh, they should emphasize that. Sometimes right. I think maybe we should just do, you know, place the picture of these dead people on the newspaper. So this is what who died yesterday,
1: and you see that, and you get scared. Honestly, you have to terrorize people. And yeah, no, absolutely. So prevention is huge in the hospital. Cohorting patients, intubating early, intubating safely, having personal protective equipment, having protocols in place, like you said, and we have similar ones of. Double or triple gloving, double is you know gowning or double gowning, uh, using N95s or PAPRs, uh, making sure that you know you are wa- having someone watch you take that off so you don't contaminate. Being careful um, not just with s- confirmed cases, but anyone who's in any at any risk, maybe with everyone, whether they're uh, you know officially a high risk patient or not, to to be aware that this could be spreading. Thinking about intubating early, thinking about early nutrition. Um, thinking about, you know, in the, if we do end up with, uh, a lot of cases, the way what's happened in Italy, if we are overwhelmed in our capacity in hospitals, thinking about who can stay home. Mike mentioned to me earlier offline that there, you guys in Penn are, are, even not having not put this in place, but thinking about if you had to, could you use one ventilator for two patients with kind of similar body mass and similar lung compliance? So you, you why off your tubing and you provide, you oh. know, two, two people on one ventilator. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, again, if we get to the point of, of being overwhelmed in our system, we're going to have to think creatively. But really, I think the message for for everybody is uh, has got to be, you know, pass on the bar, pass on the restaurant, pass on the trip, um, you know, stay away from from other people to the extent you can. And if you have to be at work because you're a healthcare provider, take care of yourself, take care of your colleagues Um and for, you know, higher level hospital administrations, whether it's at a big academic center or whether it's at uh, a community hospital, you know, don't wait. Right. We we, we this is here and it's probably going to get worse. And we don't want to be in a situation like Mirko has described where we're having to, you know, have protocols that, that tells us who gets to have a chance at a ventilator and who has to who has to die. We want to prevent us from getting there. So uh, am I leaving anything out? Are those the main take home messages we want people to have? I think so. What do you think, Mirko?
3: I think so. Um, probably if, 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 you, if we give another name to COVID, the COVID is the first name and the second name is uh, Ebola. Think as this virus is Ebola. If you think that, probably you do correct action. So search for the treatment of Ebola in Africa and try to learn something about it.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's a great point. That's a great point. People are much more scared of Ebola and not for some reason, not of this, but need to think of it that way. Uh, That's a great point. Well, look, I want to thank you both so much. Mirko, especially you, you are, uh, I can't imagine what you're going through. You're on the front line in a way that, that we aren't. And uh, thank you for everything you're doing to care for people there, to get this word out, to try to give us fair warning so we can learn from what you've gone through. I'm sorry that you're going through it, but I, I thank you for everything you're doing.
3: So thank you for uh, your attention. I hope to to can give you some useful information. We have to remember that uh, one of the duty of our work is uh, advocacy, and that. Uh, the clinical condition of the our patient are always always expression of uh, social problems. So uh, we have to maintain this uh, this this uh, direction in
1: our mind. I think.
3: So Absolutely. thank you very much.
1: Thank you, and Maurizio, thank you for everything you're doing here. Thank you. Here. Jeff. Thank you. Uh, we'll be uh, obviously, I'm sure, our institutions will be collaborating and thinking through this and. We all need to be uh, we all need to be learning from those like Mirko, who have really um, have been ahead on this uh, and have been through what we may be going through. And hopefully we can prevent that from happening.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Good night. night.
1: All right. Well, that was really powerful. I think that I learned a ton and also just, you know, gained some perspective on how serious this thing really is. I, I really hope that the rest of you did, too. Please share this so people can learn. Please have these discussions uh, with your own communities about uh, self-quarantining, about social isolation. Please have these discussions, if you're healthcare providers, with your leadership, with your hospital systems, about what we can all do to keep each other safe and, of course, keep our patients safe and prevent the kind of spread that they've seen there in Italy. Please feel free to go to the website, ACRAC.com, leave a comment Let us know what you thought. Let us know what you're learning when your own experience with this virus. If you think these messages are important, please spread the word. You can uh, tweet this out on Twitter. You can follow us. We're at Jay Walbaugh and at ACRAC podcast. You can join the Facebook group. Um, Spread the word. And people can learn from what you have to say. And from all of this, if you go to the uh, to iTunes and leave a comment and a rating, it'll help others find the show. They can access this information as well. Uh, Of course, you can go to Patreon.com to make a uh, to become a patron, make donations. uh, But I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that right now. I want people to focus on the message. And uh, just a, a usual huge thank you to Kimi Akash-Cooley, our intern, to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu for the work they do on the outlines. And, of course, our original Akrag music is by Dr. Dennis Quo, and his website is studymusicproject.com. So please uh, do what you can to get the word out and keep uh, everybody, yourself and everybody around you, safe. Thank you so much for listening for the Akrag podcast and doctors Scott, Cerreta, uh, and Nakoti, I'm Jed Walpa. Remember, what you're doing out there every day now more than ever is incredibly important and very, very valued. Thank you. Stay safe and stay healthy.